the gospel according to Mark. So, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21. Hear then the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 8. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. Jesus summoned the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, Where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to fill these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. Then he commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke the loaves, and kept on giving them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served the loaves to the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And when he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were filled. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 men were there. He dismissed them and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Verse 11. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him demanding him a sign from heaven to test him. But sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? I assure you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got on, the bo- got on board the boat again, and went to the other side. They had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he commanded them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing that you do not have any bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? Do you have eyes and not see? And Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces of bread did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces of bread did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you again that we can call you Father, our Abba, our Dad, We praise you that you have made us your children. You have adopted us in Jesus Christ, whom we have just read about. We thank you, Father, for the warnings in this text that remind us that we need to heed your word and heed your warnings. We thank you, Father, for the glory and the magnificence and the majesty of Jesus Christ. There is no one like him in heaven or on earth. The God-man, fully God, fully man, coming to earth to perform miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, die on the cross for our sins, and rise again. What a Savior. We praise you that he is our friend. And so we sang, Hallelujah. What a Savior, what a friend. Lord Jesus, we want to worship you now. We want to see you. We want to see your glory and your kindness and your power and your truthfulness. And we want to be changed. And so we ask that you would soften our hearts. We pray that you would clear up our eyes and our vision. Make our hearing a little bit more sensitive. That we might hear what your spirit is saying to us as a church. And like we've prayed already twice. We pray for any of our non-Christian friends who are here this morning. That they would hear your word. That they would repent from their sins and believe in you. By the power of your spirit taking your word and driving it into their souls. We all need you right now, Father. So come, in Jesus' name, amen. On April 15th, 1912, over 1,500 people died in the Atlantic Ocean as the Titanic hit an iceberg. The captain and others ignored several 
legitimate warnings from others that the ice, that icebergs and danger was up ahead. They ignored several warnings. But those warnings, well, like I said, they ignored them. They went unheeded. Now, when I say heed, I like that word. It's one of my favorite words. So it's an old word, but it has two concepts combined. Heeding is hearing and then obeying. So it's not just obeying. It's not just hearing, but it's hearing with the heart disposition to obey and to act. So they, they, they did not heed the warnings. 700, around 700 survived, but many lost their lives because of the grave and legitimate warnings that were unheeded. Today in this text, Jesus is warning us. Before we get to the warnings in verses 11 through 21, we need to set up the warnings with verses 1 through 10. So let me just summarize verses 1 through 10, which we just read. Jesus feeds how many men in this passage? 4,000. You say, haven't we read this before? No, if you just go back two chapters to Mark chapter 6, you see Jesus um, feed 5,000 men plus women and children. That was a different location. That was to a primarily Jewish crowd. This is, a primarily, this is primarily a non-Jewish crowd. Though doubtless in a size of 4,000 men plus women and children, there are bound to be Jews here as well. This is a Gentile crowd. And so this crowd follows Jesus. Not, so when Jesus went the first time, he went to the shore, saw the crowd and fed them. This crowd followed Jesus for three days without food. I'm hungry already. You know, I didn't eat breakfast this morning, and so I'm going to eat lunch, but I'm hungry, and it's, you know, I just skipped one meal. They haven't eaten for three days, and they're following Jesus, listening to his teachings, and presumably he's doing a few miracles as well. We don't know from the text, but they're following him for three days as he's teaching. So Jesus feels compassion on the crowd and says, we need to feed these people. They're going to faint. They haven't eaten for three days. So he tells the disciples... Like a good leader, you don't just try to solve the problem by yourself. You let the group solve it together. We have a problem here. People are hungry and they're going to faint. We need to feed them. The disciples look around at each other and they say, This is impossible. What are we going to do? Do we have enough? We're in a desolate place. There's 4,000 men plus women and children. There's no way we could feed these people. And you're thinking, wait, just a few weeks ago, we read Mark chapter 6. Weren't you guys there? Jesus fed 5,000 just a few weeks ago. But for whatever reason, that doesn't even cross their mind. They're just scared and shocked or um, ashamed that they can't feed this crowd. And so Jesus says again, how many loaves do you have? This time they say seven. and They have a few small fish. So Jesus, just like before, blesses the bread. He gives thanks. He breaks it. He passes it to the disciples. And they are going back and forth several times to feed 4,000 men plus women and children. And then after that, their appetites are fully satisfied. They're fully filled. Their, their appetite is gone. And so Jesus leaves that area and leaves the crowd with his disciples to go back to a Jewish area. Okay, so that's the story. That's the background. Before we move on to the three warnings now, it's important to note some things about this background, this story, this miracle. Just like feeding the 5,000, Jesus had compassion. Remember back then, Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Same thing here, whether it's Jews or Gentiles. And praise God, most of us here are Gentiles, non-Jews. Praise God that when Jesus looks at the crowd, whether Jew or Gentile, he has compassion and he sees all of us like sheep without a shepherd. And he wants to pastor us. Not only that, Jesus shows his identity. Not only he's, he's able to provide food for his people, He's able to provide food for those in need. He's generous. He's, he's, he's gracious. But not only does he provide bread, like the manna from heaven when Moses did, or when God did through Moses, he also is the bread of life, right? In John chapter 6, after he fed the 5,000, he said the next day, eat my flesh and drink my blood. They didn't like that. But he was saying, I'm the bread of life. If you want eternal life, you have to eat me. You have to believe in me. You have to come to me. You have to entrust your life to me. And so we learn that here. It's all about Jesus' identity. Whether feeding 5,000 or 4,000, he is gracious. He is the shepherd. He is compassionate. He feeds, and not only does he feed, he is the bread of life. He is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. That's what miracles do. 
Miracles point to the identity of Jesus. And that's important as we look at these three warnings now. Because this, these three warnings are all about who is Jesus. And you have to understand that the miracles point to who Jesus is. So here's the main point of the sermon. If you want to say, if you want to know, PJ, what's the main point of this text? The main point is this. Jesus is warning you to beware of hardening your heart towards him. That's the warning to you this morning. Beware of hardening your heart to Jesus. Beware of going deaf when Jesus is speaking to you. Beware of being blind when Jesus is showing you his glory. It's a warning to us, to me, to you. And Jesus has dealt with me this week as I've been studying this text. And I hope he deals with you as well. Very kindly and graciously, yet um, convicting, hopefully. So we need to take these warnings very seriously. Okay, so let's look at these three warnings, one at a time. Look at verse 15. We'll, we'll pick up the warning there. We have the, the first two warnings in verse 15. He commands the disciples as they're in the boat and they're going away. He says to them in verse 15, Watch out, beware of what? The yeast or the leaven of who? Two groups. Pharisees and Herod. Okay, so you have our first two warnings here. We're not going to spend a lot of um, time on warning number two, but we'll just touch it briefly. But warning number one, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. That's warning number one. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, before we look at what, what he means by yeast, let's just think about what the Pharisees just did. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, the Pharisees came out to Jesus as he came to the Jewish side of the shore. And what did they want from him? They wanted a sign, and they demanded a sign from him. Can you imagine that? You're going to Jesus, and you're grabbing his cloak. Show me a sign. And they want a sign from where? From heaven. In other words, they've seen miracles. It's not like they just want to see another miracle. Cast out another demon, Jesus. Heal another sick person, Jesus. Feed more people, Jesus. That's not what they're asking. They want a sign from heaven. They want something so spectacular, so magnificent, so un, un, um, so, so, something so clear, so unambiguous that it's clear that Jesus is the Messiah. Make lightning strike or, or go fly in the sky or, or, um, or bring in the kingdom that was prophesied from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Make a new heavens and new earth right here, right now. If you're the king and you're the Messiah, do it right now, Jesus. Show us a sign. That's not too respectful, right, towards Jesus. They demanded a sign, and it says why they demanded a sign. What were they doing in verse 11? They were tempting him or testing him. They were, using, they were being used by Satan to tempt Jesus. They were testing him. In other words, they didn't want to submit to Jesus as Lord. They wanted Jesus to submit to their demand for a sign. Well, then who's Lord? If you want Jesus to submit to your demand, then you're God or your Lord. And so they want Jesus to do this and they just want to test him. This test is not a real test where they really want to know the truth. I mean, we know this because when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which was one of his most spectacular miracles in John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Once the Pharisees and scribes find out, you know what they do? Do they just say, he must be the Messiah, let's go worship him, let's follow him. Is that what they do? No, they double down and say, now we really need to kill him. Because if everyone finds out about this miracle, everyone's going to follow him. There's your sign. Were you going to believe? No, you double down instead and plan to kill him. And so that's what they did. Just like Exodus 17, 2 says, the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. And Moses says, why are you complaining to me? Why are you testing the Lord with your complaining? Similar thing here with these Pharisees. Now, Jesus tells us to beware of the what of the Pharisees? The leaven or the yeast. Now, what is yeast? Yeast is a single-celled organism causing bread to rise. Right? It gets in the dough. Even before you bake the dough, you you put the, the yeast or the leaven into the dough and it causes it to rise. And so... What is the yeast here? What is the yeast of the Pharisees? What is it that gets into the dough so much that it spreads and expands and fills the whole thing? What is the yeast? Well, there's a lot of guesses here. We're not going to take time to 
to go through the different guesses. In Matthew chapter 16, we get a straightforward answer. In Luke 12, it says it's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. But that's in a different conversation and context. But Matthew 16 has the same story here. So in Matthew 16, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And at the end they say, Oh, he was talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. The teaching of the Pharisees. So that's the, that's the yeast you're supposed to beware of. Beware of false teaching from religious people. The Pharisees are religious teachers. They're religious leaders even. What do they teach about Jesus? Who was Jesus? He casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Satan, right? That was their view of Jesus. Is Jesus the Messiah according to the Pharisees? Yes or no? No, that's their teaching. We know who Jesus is. We, well, we don't know who he is, but we know who he's not. He is not the Messiah. That is their teaching. And when you get that teaching permeating your life, it fills up everything about you. And so that is the teaching that they need to be aware of. Now, did the, did the Pharisees hate the Bible? Did they hate the Old Testament? No. They tried to teach it. So let me go even one step further. We need to beware of teaching that is unbiblical but looks biblical. We need to beware of teaching that looks orthodox but is unorthodox. They did it based on their man-made traditions mixing it in with the Bible. Now this yeast, this idea can dominate someone if it gets a hold of them. Some of you are familiar with the movie Inception. Maybe some of you have, maybe some of you haven't seen that movie. But the idea of Inception is that you get an idea into someone's head and you make them think that they thought it and then it controls their whole life. Right? They get an idea, they feel like it comes from them, and then it dictates their whole life. And that's what yeast does. If you get this idea, you get this teaching about who Jesus is, he's the Messiah, he's not the Messiah, whichever way you go on that, that will dictate your whole life. That has repercussions everywhere. And so beware of the yeast, the teaching of the Pharisees with their wrong view of Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, first of all, I want to say on behalf of the members of First Southern Baptist Church of Bellflower, thank you for coming this morning. We welcome you here. You're welcome here every Sunday as we think about the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a question for you, though, this morning, or I actually have a statement for you um, to think about in light of the yeast of the Pharisees. I want you to understand, if you're not a Christian here this morning, that Christianity is not, the message of Christianity is not get religious. And the gospel is not get religious. That's what the Pharisees were about. We don't want Jesus. We just want to do a bunch of things that the Bible says in the traditions to uphold it, to look spiritual, to look clean, to look righteous. If you're not a Christian, you're saying, I don't want to be a Christian because I can't get clean. I can't clean myself up. I have good news for you. That is not the gospel. That is not the message of the Bible, to clean yourself up. You know, there is no verse in the Bible that says, God helps those who help themselves. That's not a verse in the Bible. Praise God, that's not a verse in the Bible. The good news is that God cleans sinners. God saves sinners. And so I just want you to know, if you're not a Christian, that we're not calling you to get religious. We're calling you to understand who Jesus is and follow him with your life. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, you know what, I would believe in God if he showed me a sign. I don't feel like I'm like the Pharisees where I'm demanding a sign just so that God can prove himself. I would believe in God if he showed me a sign. And let's be honest, some of us Christians, don't we think when we're praying for people, Lord, if you just heal this person of their cancer, then they'll believe in you? Or if you just do this one thing, God, then it will convince them. So you've got to answer this prayer, Lord, do this for them. Get them that job, because if they get that job and they know we're praying for them, then they'll believe, right? And they might, if it's like Pastor Merle prayed, if the Holy Spirit's working in them and pricking their heart, then certainly they can. But we must not put confidence in the signs. In the miracles, in the answered prayers, ultimately. Why not? Why not? Well, here's why. First of all, God is God, and we can't dem demand things from God as if we're God. Secondly, though, God does show signs, but he doesn't have hoops for us to jump through, or for him to jump through, like he's at our mercy. Now, does God want everyone to be saved? Yes or no? Yes. But God is not like a, a wet dog in the rain pleading for you to take him into the house. He's not at our mercy as he wants us to be saved. He's more like a father who has runaway children and he longs and is begging for them to come back, not because he needs them, but because they need him. And he has their resources and the provision and the love. God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
as a loving father who knows that they need him. And so we don't, when we think about demanding signs, sometimes we think of it as, come on, God, convince me, because I know you really, really want me. And he does really want you, but you don't realize who's the one in trouble and who's not. Now, some ask for proof with an attitude that will never be enough. If, now this didn't happen, but if when I was dating my wife, Frances, we dated for eight months, four months dating, four months engagement, and then we're married. But if we were dating and she said, you know what, PJ, I want you to prove your love to me. I want you to ride on a unicycle five miles in the snow with no t-shirt. Then I will know that you love me and I won't break up with you. Now, if she did that when we were dating, I wouldn't have done it. And it's not because I didn't love her. It's because that doesn't prove my love for her. And it wouldn't satisfy, it wouldn't rightly satisfy whatever is in her mind that she needs to have proof that, I'm, that I love her. I would say, look at the ring on your finger. Look at the fact that I want to marry you and live with you for the rest of my life. That's, that's, so in other words, just because you want a sign doesn't mean it always, it, it always coheres with what you're actually wanting to prove. So you might say, you know, God, if you just lift this pulpit right now, I would believe in you. Uh, you, you might think you would, but I would question your confidence that you would, actually would believe. And I have a reason for that. In Luke chapter 16, you could keep your finger in Mark 8. Turn to Luke 16. To the right of your Bible, just to the right side of Mark, go to Luke chapter 16. And then we'll pick up in verse 27. Luke 16, verse 27. Now, I'll set the story here just so you understand what's going on. In this story here in Luke 16, Jesus is telling the story of Lazarus and a rich man. Now, the rich man is in hell or in, um, let's see, it's something like hell. He's, he's, in, he's suffering in fire, right? And then Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. Now, we don't need to get into the, the whole theology of what's going on there. We, I'm happy to talk to you about that at the door, but he, let me get to the point. The rich man is, is there suffering for his sins, not saved. Lazarus is with Abraham. And he's okay. He's safe. And so the the rich man starts to beg Abraham in verse 27. He says, Father, he said, I beg you then, if you're not going to give me water, then I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't come to this place of torment. That would be, that's a good prayer request, right? Or good request to Abraham. Can you please send him back? Because I don't want my five brothers to go to hell. Or to burn in torment. That's a good good request. But listen to Abraham's response. And God's word. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. They got the Bible. And then what does the man say? No, Father Abraham. He said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will what? Repent. There. If they get a sign of someone rising from the dead, then they're going to repent and trust. Right? What does Abraham say in verse 31? But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will what? Not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. See that? If you're not going to believe the Bible, God's word, you can get this pulpit to lift up and say, okay, then I'll believe in Jesus. What does Abraham say? What does God say? No. If someone rose from the dead and showed themselves to you, if you're going to reject God on the basis of his word and reject his word, Forever, you ha- there is no other way. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, right? The word of God. And so, all that to say, if you're demanding a sign, you're going down the wrong track. So beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. That's their track of demanding a sign. If you're a Christian, here's the application to you. Examine why you want to know Jesus. Why do you, why do you want to have Jesus? The Pharisees wanted Jesus to do this so that they can get so that they can justify their knowledge, so that they can be seen to be right, right? They want Jesus to, to submit to him to them in that way. You have to examine why you want to, why you want to have Jesus in your life. Not everyone wants God for, for God. Oftentimes we want God so that God will give us something else that we want. Nice house, health, friendship. But we need to want God for God. What about our church? How does this apply to our church? For our church, we need corporate discernment. 
What that means is we need to beware of the teaching. If we're going to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, the teaching of the Pharisees, that means when people sound orthodox and sound biblical, but they don't have Jesus at the center of their teaching, we need to be able to sniff that out. In Hebrews 5, a mature Christian is, the, is those who have discernment. They can tell false from true. Immature Christians can't tell the difference. And as a church, we need to help each other mature so that we can tell the difference when things look true and are not. I'll give you one example of this before we get to our second warning. Uh, a pastor friend of mine here in L.A. region, in the L.A. region, he, post, um, he, he was commending a video online of a guy who was quoting some scripture. He quoted that, ask and you'll believe. Actually, I'll just say who it, who it was, like who was on the video. It was Steve Harvey. I don't know if you guys seen this. I posted on my, my Facebook last night. Steve Harvey, he's giving a pep talk to these people in the crowd, and he's saying, ask and you'll believe. And he's saying, and faith without works is dead. And so he's saying, he's making an example of one of his managers on the set, and he says, you guys need to quit your job and go fulfill your dream. All of you, he's like, if you're not living out your dream, you'll never be happy. If you don't have your dream job, you'll never be happy. All of you need to quit your job and go pursue your dream job. And it says in the Bible, ask and you'll believe. And faith without works is dead, so you got to go do it. Go do it. God says go, go trust him and take the leap, and when you take the leap by faith, then God will do it. And he, even, you know, he says, it doesn't say in the Bible, in the scriptures, that you need to figure it out for yourself. So jump. you got to do it or you'll never be happy. Now, I don't want to get into the details of why he's wrong. All, all that, um, a few reasons why he's wrong is, it says, ask and you'll believe. You're, you're talking to God praying according to his will. And work is first of all to provide for your needs, 1 Timothy 5. If anyone, if a man doesn't provide for his household, he's worse than a what? An unbeliever. That's the first reason for your job. He's telling you to quit your job so that you can go pursue your dream. And again, I'm not saying it's completely wrong. There are some ways. But he's saying that the main thing is, if, and he says this, this is what's wrong. If you never fulfill your dream job, you'll never be happy. Is that true? According to the Bible? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice in your pleasures in your at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It says in Psalm sixteen eleven, God is our joy, God is our pleasure. Right? Here's my point, though. A lot of Christians are liking that video, and even a pastor is commending it. And you you have to beware, and think biblically about what's being said. Just because they quote scripture doesn't mean it's biblical. Okay. Let's go to the second thing. So not only beware of the teaching of the Pharisees, we need also beware in verse 15 of the yeast of who? Herod. And we're we're not going to spend a a long time here because they're not really in the story, but Jesus mentions them, mentions Herod. So we need to think about it just briefly. Now, remember Herod a few weeks ago? He he killed John the Baptist. How did he kill John the Baptist? He beheaded him. Remember, um, we talked about Herod and his romance and how he committed adultery. He seduced his brother's wife and the whole mixture of political power and then going to Rome and all that stuff. So Herod was adulterous. He was sexually immoral. He was ambitious politically, right, and selfish. And he was weak and passive when he didn't want to kill John the Baptist, but his but he let his daughter, his stepdaughter, dance immodestly uh, uh, to entertain men and then granted her request. That's Herod's life, Okay. That's who Herod was in, in um, Mark chapter 6, if you want to read verses 14 to 29. So James Brooks, a commentator, says this. As for the yeast of Herod, it could be adultery, murder, and political ambition. That could be part of it. Herod's life, that, that could be part of it. But what I want to say as far as the yeast or the teaching, the main problem with the teaching of the Pharisees and the main problem of the teaching of Herod is who they think Jesus is. That is what we're talking about when we're talking about false teaching or yeast. Who is Jesus? That's the question. And for Herod, who was Jesus? Does anyone remember? Who did Herod think Jesus was? John the Baptist raised from the, from the dead. Remember that? So this is who Herod thinks he is. He, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Later on, Herod wants to kill Jesus. Same Herod wants to kill Jesus. And, and, and some of the crowd, when he's teaching, the crowd says to him, Herod wants to kill you in Luke 13. And then Jesus stands trial before Herod at the end of his life, before he dies on the cross. And Herod is so happy. Yeah, I get to see Jesus. I always wanted to see all these miracles. He gets Jesus there. He starts asking Jesus all these questions with, with a, a sense of excitement and anticipation. And Jesus doesn't look him in the eye, doesn't say one word. So what does Herod do? He starts mocking him with his soldiers. 
spitting on him and shaming him. So who does Herod think Jesus is? Here's my answer. Herod thinks Jesus is insignificant. He's a nobody. And therefore, I don't have to respect him. Maybe he's a sideshow at most, but I'm the one in political power. And I could free him or I could condemn him. He's a sideshow. He's beneath me. And not only that, he's so unimportant in my life that I can commit adultery if I want. I can pursue political ambitions. I can behead prophets. I can throw birthday parties that are borderline pornographic because Jesus is nothing to me. God is nothing to me. Now, I believe in God, but not enough to where he actually changes my life. He actually makes demands on my life. That's a view of Jesus out there. There are a lot of people, you know, when, we, when you take the polls of who believes in Jesus in, our, in America, isn't the number astounding? It's like 75% or 80% say that they're Christian or believe in Jesus. And you're saying, if that's true, then what, what's happening with everything else? That's more of the east of Herod. Where you might, Herod said he believed, you know, if, he, if Herod said he believed in God, he believed in God, but God is so marginal in his life that it doesn't make any demands on his marriage. It doesn't make any demands on his friendship. It doesn't make any demands on his political ambitions. In other words, Jesus and God is not really important if they exist at all. So beware of, so you're saying, well, PJ, we're here in church. How can we be ignoring Jesus? Well, maybe you're not ignoring him, but you might say you believe in him, but you're not letting him dominate every part of your life. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your church life. Maybe it's your relationship with your neighbors. Maybe it's your family. Are you letting Jesus be Jesus or are you marginalizing him and saying, yeah, I believe in him, but I'm going to do whatever I want in this area of my life or in my life as a whole. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. And just because you say you're loving Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you're loving Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commands. Okay, that's the second warning. So beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. Beware of the teaching of Herod, of who he thinks Jesus is. And thirdly, beware of hardening your heart like the disciples. And this is the big one for me in my own study. This is the big one for all of us as as Christians here in this church. Beware of hardening your heart like the disciples. Did the disciples harden their heart? Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, so so here's what Jesus is doing. He's taking a piece of bread. They're on the boat. They just left feeding 4,000. They just left the Pharisees who demanded a sign. He's in the boat. And we don't, you know, just imagine this. He takes the bread and says, see this bread? It's It's their only one loaf. You brothers here, my disciples, you need to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they're looking around saying, we only have one loaf of bread. And they're looking at each other like, where's the rest of the bread? We had a lot of bread. Peter, where'd you put the bread? I thought Andrew had it. Andrew, I didn't have it. I thought John brought it. No, didn't we leave it on? Who, who, all of you guys forgot bread. And you know, they start discussing among themselves who forgot the bread. And Jesus is saying, you guys are totally missing the point. You're totally missing the point. You're missing the analogy. And they started questioning one another. Uh, one one New Testament scholar says this: It's like giving your student in the in their um, a student their hard in the hardest subject, whether it's math or science, giving them the clearest explanation for the thirtieth time, and they still don't get it. Have any of you tried to explain math to your children when they're young, and you say it over and over and over, and you try to explain it thirty different ways, and they still don't get it? That's what Jesus is dealing with here with this whole bread thing. It's like, have you ever taken a test or answered a question in school and you completely miss the point of the question? You write a paragraph or you write an essay or you, 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 know, you do this long math problem and you miss something so basic at the very beginning and you just miss the whole point of the, of the, of the problem? That's what they're doing here. The bread is an analogy. Beware of the yeast. And they're there arguing about bread. You know, just totally missing the point. Like, like, a, like maybe a you know, pastor preaching 
And, you know, you're preaching your heart. You know, a pastor could be preaching his heart out, completely faithful to the text, the Holy Spirit moving in the congregation. And then someone gets, or someone at the door or is talking about later and says, man, did the pastor have a new tie on today? And that's, that's the whole point. Like, for them, that's, that's, the biggest, that's the biggest Sunday takeaway. Was the pastor wearing a new tie? What? Is that the point? It's not the bread. It's not the, it's not the physical bread in my hand, Jesus is saying. And there's no point in giving them the answer directly. That's like giving them the answer to a math problem without teaching them how to solve it. Right? If I just tell my kids the, the answers to the math problems, that doesn't teach them math. Jesus is pointing to the evidence. He's saying, can't you see? Put it together. And they don't put it together. They argue amongst themselves. Look at what they do in verse 17. They start discussing that they don't have any bread. So in verse 17, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are, you dis- why are you discussing that you don't have any bread? Don't you? And listen to these questions. They're so, they're like hammers on an anvil on their heart over and over. Don't you understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Do you not remember what we've been doing these last few weeks? He's telling his disciples on the boat. When I broke 5,000, how many, how many baskets were left? 12, they said. Good. Right answer. Okay, let's go next step. When we fed 4,000, how, how many baskets were left? Seven, they said. Good. Do you still not get it? It's not about the bread. If we're hungry on the boat, we have one loaf. I could feed all 12 of you. It's not a problem. Do you not get it yet? It's not about that. The disciples are on a path of danger. Their hearts are hard. Their eyes are what? Closed or blind. And their ears are deaf. They are on a path of spiritual danger here. And Jesus is warning them. They need to get off this path real quick. Or just like I said in the beginning of the Titanic, you, you don't heed this warning, your boat is sinking and you're going down. Here's what one uh, scholar, Rick, Rick Watts, writes. If they are to avoid being like Herod and the Pharisees, they must think more carefully about the meaning of the feedings and by implication, Jesus walking on the sea. That's what he did after he fed the 5,000. Like Deuteronomy's Israel in the Exodus and Isaiah's Israel in exile, they, they have seen many things, but they have not understood They've seen a lot, they just don't get it. However, they have one thing in their favor. They're not like Herod or the Pharisees. What's different about these disciples? Unlike those whose hearts are truly and finally hardened, the, the twelve, even if they don't understand, they're still following Jesus. So there's still a chance. That's no small thing. But they have to get off the path. They're on the wrong road right now, and Jesus is warning them. You know, it says in Isaiah 40 that Jesus is going to lead the blind out on a new exodus redemption from exile. He's going to lead the people and they have to be able to follow him because if they don't follow him, then they will be judged with the rest of those who are not saved. So Rick Watts continues, the disciples are teetering in that direction of judgment. But if they continue to follow and learn from Jesus, they will participate in his restoration. That's, that's the issue here. Their eyes are, are blind, their ears are deaf, and they've been following Jesus for two years to some degree. Now, that doesn't mean they're fully and finally blind like the Pharisees, but they're in trouble right now. And there's a quote here in verse 18. This is a quote from the Old Testament. It goes back to Jeremiah chapter 5. So keep your finger in Mark 8 and go to the left to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah 5. Here in Jeremiah 5, verse 21, in verse 21, you have the, the, the quote. Here's what it says. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people. They have eyes but don't see, and they have ears but don't hear. There's, there's the quote. They have eyes but see, but ears but don't hear. Now, if you're in Jeremiah, you said, PJ, you read it already. Should I still turn here? Yes, because gonna, we're going to stick to Jeremiah for a few minutes. Okay, But look, what, who is Jeremiah writing to? Jeremiah is writing in the period of the exile. So God brought his people out of Egypt into the promised land, right? And then David was the king, and then Solomon was the king, and then the kingdom divided into two. And he says, if you keep the law covenant, the Ten Commandments, and the covenant I made with you when I first started this nation, you'll stay in the land. If you don't keep the covenant, then what? You're out of here. You're exiled. 
So Jeremiah is writing right before they get exiled in Jerusalem. And he's telling them, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. So what is God going to do? What is God going to do in verse 14? It says he's going to burn them up. He's going to burn them up. In verses 15 and 17, it says he's going to get a nation to oppose them, to kill them, to consume them, to use all of their resources, to destroy their cities, and to kick them out of the land. These people in Jerusalem, in Judah, at this time are in deep trouble because of their blindness and because of their deafness. Because they have disobeyed the law covenant, they are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf, they are about to get kicked out of the land. In verse 26, it says that God withholds his bounty from them. He withholds his goodness from them. In verse 29, it says, God will punish them and he will avenge himself. You know this verse. Vengeance is mine, says who? Who, who? who does vengeance belong to? To the Lord. God will get revenge. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will avenge himself for all of your sins against him. He te- um, Jeremiah is telling those in Judah, because of your hard hearts, because of your blind eyes, because of your deaf ears, God will avenge himself and he will punish you. He will punish you. And so we, we see here that the disciples, or we see here that, that Israel is in trouble because they are deaf and they are blind. And the disciples were on this similar path. Now, this is not new for these, these Jews in, in Jerusalem. Even before they got to the promised land, listen to Deuteronomy 29, verses 3 and 4. Remember they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years and they couldn't get into land because they kept disobeying God? Do you remember that? Here's what God said about them in Deuteronomy 29. You saw with your own... Deuteronomy 29, verses 3 and 4. You saw with your own eyes the great trials and those great signs and wonders. They saw the crossing of the Red Sea. They saw the ten plagues. They saw the manna from heaven every day. They saw the signs and wonders. But listen to verse 4. Yet, to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. They're blind. They were blind. Now, look at, to, look at what they were blind about in verse 22, Jeremiah 5, 22. It says, Do you not fear me? This is the Lord's declaration. Do you not tremble before me? I am the one who what? I'm the one who set the sand as the boundary of the sea, an enduring barrier that it cannot cross. The waves surge, but they cannot prevail. The roars pass over it. So who is God? God is the creator. Do they recognize him as God and fear him as God? Yes or no? No. Therefore, they're indicted. Because they, they, they see God's signs, but they don't know who he is. And therefore, they don't fear him. What's the disciples' problem? What have they seen? They've seen so many miracles, but they still don't get who Jesus is. Now, before we um, throw the disciples completely overboard, in our next section, Peter is going to identify Jesus correctly. But it, they're getting there. But before they get there, here's the warning. If you don't understand who I am, Jesus is saying, you're blind and you're deaf and your heart is hard and you're in trouble. And judgment is coming to those who don't get it. To those who, who misunderstand who I am. And so this judgment of God is going to come upon you where God burns you up, opposes you, exiles you, withholds his bounty and goodness from you and avenges himself in punishing you. Now, was Israel exiled? Yes or no? Were they judged? Yes or no? They were. This is a real threat for them, and this is now a very real threat for the disciples. This is not a fake threat. This is real. He's telling the disciples, don't you get it yet? Now, he says, yet. That's hope. But this is a real threat that they need to take seriously. And did all of them take it seriously? Did all 12 take the warning of Jesus seriously and make it? No. Who didn't? Judas. He, he didn't know who Jesus... He, he gave into the teaching of the Pharisees, right? He gave into the East. That, that idea got in his head and he believed it to the point where he did not endure in faith. Even though he was a disciple. He was one of the 12. But his faith wasn't real. Judas went down the wrong path. He did not heed the warning of Jesus. The other disciples did heed the warning. Question for us. Will we heed the warning? Will you heed the warning in knowing and trusting Jesus as he has revealed himself in the Bible? Here's what Hebrews 3.12 says. And here's an application to our church family. Hebrews 3.12 says this. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. 
but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you are hardened by sin's deception. Every one of you sitting in this room that, can, that I can see and all of you looking at me, all of us have the possibility of our hearts being hardened by sin's deception and falling away from God and proving that we never really were truly Christian. That's a real possibility for everyone here right now. And God is warning you. He's warning me. He's warning us. Heed the warning. Do you understand who Jesus is? And are you going to follow him with your life? And are you going to encourage each other? Because this text, Hebrews 3 says, as a church family, we need to encourage each other and keep pointing each other back to who? Back to Jesus. Keep pointing people back to Jesus. Now, why were the 11 disciples able to heed the warning? And what hope is there for us? To soften our hearts and unstop our deaf ears and and open our blind eyes. What hope is there for us? What hope is there for us to not be judged and burned up and exiled and have God's goodness withheld? And what hope is there for us to not be punished? Here's the hope. Jesus was burned up. Jesus was exiled. Jesus had God's bounty withheld from him on the cross. Jesus was punished by God on the cross. God avenged Jesus on the cross. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And he he exercises that vengeance on Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. Because of our blind eyes, because of our deaf ears, Jesus is exiled on the cross. He suffers the vengeance of God that we deserve. And that's why we can be forgiven. That's why our eyes can be opened. That's why our ears can be opened. That's why our hearts can be softened. Because Jesus died to purchase for us salvation and the grace of God. Praise God we have a Savior who died for us. Amen? Amen. Praise God we have a Savior who purchased open eyes and, and unstopping deaf ears. Because we would not just be like the disciples. We would be like the Pharisees or like Herod ourselves. Right? That would be us. Were it not for Christ and were it not for grace. Praise God for Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian here, this is the message God wants you to hear. That God made you. Here's the gospel. God made you. He loves you. And you are accountable to him. He made you in his image to enjoy him. But you have turned away from God. We all have. We're all sinners. And the penalty of sin is death. But God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins and rise from the dead so that Today, if you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, you would be saved. That's what God's telling you as a non-Christian. Trust in me. Repent from your sins and follow me. What does this mean for us as Christians? It means for us that we need to think carefully about what God's word means. The disciples weren't thinking so carefully. Remember the Syrophoenician woman? When Jesus said to her last week in our study, he said to her, um, let the children eat first. It's not right to take the food and give it to the dogs. What word did she cling to? Let the children eat First, remember, she was paying attention to the words. The disciples here were not paying attention to the meaning of Christ's words. We are in danger, brothers and sisters, as Christians, to not pay attention to the meaning of God's word. What is God telling you today from this ancient text? Don't become a professional sermon listener. Don't do it. God, keep me from being a professional preacher where I'm not hearing what you're telling me. What are you telling me from the ancient text? Today, what are you telling me? What is God telling you? We need to think carefully about what he's telling us, what it means for our trials, and what it means for our experience. And Jesus wants to be in the center of our life, the center of our experience again and again and again. So we need to check our response to Jesus when we're in trial. Let me give you an example from my life. Here's a, few, here's a failure in my life, um, even this past week. So I want to take Jesus' questions. Here's how it convicted me. Jesus is saying, don't you get it? Don't you know who I am? Don't you understand yet? Is your heart hard? Is your eyes blind? Is your ears deaf? I've been saying this in our Wednesday night Bible study, so I'm going to use the example, but I'll apply it here. So I got a ticket driving, um, was it four weeks ago now? It was VBS graduation night on a Friday. I got a ticket on the freeway because I crossed the double yellow lines into the carpool lane because we were late for VBS graduation. Here, you know, police with a motorcycle, you know, pulls me over. And he, you know, he sees the kids in the car. Where are you going? I'm going to VBS graduation for my kids. Um, and so, you know, he says, you, can't, you know, you can't be crossing the double yellow lines. I gave a lame excuse. You know, I was like, well, I missed it when, you know, when the entrance was. But it was because I was trying to get the VBS songs ready for the kids as we're driving. So I missed the entrance. And so he's like, well, you missed the entrance pretty far back. You know, I'm like, okay. 
was like, yeah, I came off of um, Rosecrans. And so I'm going 605 North. I get the ticket. All right, first he walks away. I'm not sure if he's going to let me off or not. You know, he writes a ticket, gives me the ticket, and I'm just angry. I'm mad at the cop for giving me a ticket and not excusing me. I'm trying to get my kids to VBS for, all, for crying out loud, right? To their graduation. Why are you writing me a ticket? You see, I have kids here. Uh, you know, what's, what's your problem? And, and now I've got to pay money. You know, there's an unnecessary bill in my life now. So... I'm upset for a little bit as we're going to VBS graduation. I'm mad. I'm embittered towards the officer. I felt like the ticket I got was unfair and that he should have given me a break. And then Jesus says to me, don't you understand yet? Is your heart so hard, PJ, that you don't know who I am right now in your life? Are your eyes blind? Can you not see who I am in your life right now as you're driving? Are your ears deaf? Don't you know that you you say I'm Lord? Am I really Lord of your life right now? Don't you know who I am in this situation? Don't you understand that this ticket is all about my glory in your life, PJ? You disobeyed my word in Romans 13. And yet you call me Lord. Romans 13 says obey the law. You disobeyed my word and yet you call me Lord, PJ. You're upset about the money you're going to have to spend, but it's my money. You think the officer should excuse you, right? But the officer is supposed to do his work for my glory, not yours. He's right in giving you the ticket. Don't you understand yet? Is your heart so hard, PJ? You're a pastor. Don't you get it? I am Lord. Not you, PJ. That's what God's telling us. The hardness of their hearts is the hardness of our hearts in our trials. In our family fights. In our disputes. In our little complaints. In our lives. Don't you get it yet, FSBC? Don't we get it? He's Lord. Not us. And yet, praise God that Jesus died for us and he softens our heart and he rebukes us again and again. Do we take his rebuke and repent? Or do we just get more mad and say, well, next time they better get it right. Next time God better get it right. God is good to us, isn't he? He's good in humbling us. He's good in rebuking us. He's good in showing us that we don't get it yet. Because he wants to be understood. He wants us to live for his glory. Because he's a good God. And we're we're blessed to be his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is Jesus. We thank you for your patience. Like our brother Jim read, you're slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And we test your patience, Father. I know I do. You know I do better than I do. So, Father, would you forgive us for our hard hearts, for our blind eyes, for our deaf ears, for us always pointing the finger at other people when you want us to carefully listen to your word in the trials and situations of our lives? God, we need your help in our families. We need your help in our health. We need your help in our church. We need your help in our evangelism. We need your help in our neighborhoods. We need your help in our country. We need you. And yet, you're calling us to soften our hearts in all of these areas. So please give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to trust Jesus and entrust our lives to him. And help us to do it together as a church family, pointing each other to Jesus all the way until you take us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.